Well, this morning we're continuing in a series that I've called Nuts and Bolts, the bare bones, the essentials that hold everything together in the way of ministry. And so if you're just walking in today, I don't know that it's going to be that hard to pick up and listen with where we are. But there is a bigger story that's been told in the weeks past. We've talked about having a a biblical ministry purpose and a biblical list of ministry goals. You can always go back and listen to those on podcast uh, to try to get a picture of what Greenwood Presbyterian Church is seeking to emphasize who we want to be. But because of the nature of these sermons, it can feel a little bit seminarish at times like a seminar, and that's not what this is. We really are hearing from God's Word in the way of a sermon, things for us to apply, but it is a little teaching heavy for these weeks, and I admit that. This morning, we're going to look at some of the tangible fruit that God is calling us to bear. You've heard scriptures this morning about fruit, that we're to be fruitful, we're to be faithful, we're not to be barren and fruitless in our Christian lives. And so the big picture is obviously God would have His people and His church collectively bear much fruit, be rich in fruit, and we would be warned to not be fruitless because fruitlessness comes from faithlessness. And so we're emphasizing what is some of the tangible fruit that God would want to see in the lives of Christians. And there's about seven things, maybe eight. Maybe there'll be nine when we get to the end of this. Um, we, are, we are looking to Scripture for describing what this fruit should look like. And this morning, these are in no particular order, but this morning the first fruit that we're going to look at is the fruit of worship. That if we're going to be fruit-bearing Christians, worship is a priority. For the individual Christian, yes, but especially corporately for all of us when we gather on the Lord's day. The Lord has prioritized worship for our good and for His glory. And so what passage do you go to? Well, I've chosen from the Old Testament a portion of Psalm 96. Uh, Give your attention to Psalm 96 verses 1 through 9 as we try to turn our attention towards the fruit of worship and what it is God would have of His people. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor 
of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding and application of His holy word. Lord, would You draw near to us as we have sought to faithfully draw near to You in worship this morning. Lord, we've come to confess our sins and we've received Your pardon, the assurance that there is mercy in Jesus for sinners. And so, Lord, in that context of having confessed our sin and having received assurance of pardon, would you now feed us in word and in sacrament? Show us what it is to be thankful children of the living God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you will remember what in my mind is the single greatest commercial on television ever. What's the single greatest commercial ever, Paul? Well, it's 30 years old, and you'll probably feel pretty old when I describe it if you remember it, because I can't believe it was 30 years ago. It was the Got Milk campaign. Remember this, Got Milk with a question mark and the milk mustache? That began 30 years ago. That's kind of crazy to think. But here is where it all started. This is where the campaign started and what I think was the greatest commercial ever. The scene begins with a man by himself in a house. And he is seated. It's a nice living room. Uh, He's seating at a dining room table. And the camera begins to pan on two things. Number one, he's listening to a radio. And it sounds like NPR, but it's classical music. It's that kind of genre of radio station. And then the camera pans around to a bookshelf devoted to Alexander Hamilton. Do you remember this? And then there's a portrait of Alexander Hamilton. And then there's a bust of Alexander Hamilton. And it goes on and on. There's figurines of Alexander Hamilton. And then you see a glass case. And in the glass case, it says, The Bullet. And underneath it, it says, A. Burr. Aaron Burr. And it's got two old pistols facing the glass case. And so that's the first thing it shows you is context. The second thing it shows you is as he's seated at this dining room table listening to the classic music and you're seeing what this man is all about, he is spreading on a piece of white bread thick slab of peanut butter. Do you remember this? Thick slab of peanut butter. And he takes it up to his mouth, he folds it like a taco, and the radio suddenly changes. It says, that concludes our hour of classical music, something like that. Now it's time for our weekly trivia question. This week, $10,000 as we call someone randomly for our trivia question. So he now bites into the bread and the peanut butter, eats half of it in one bite, and then comes the question. We will now randomly call one of our listeners to answer this question. Who shot 
Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and his phone rings. And with his mouth full of bread and peanut butter, he picks up the phone and he says, Hurr? and the voice on the other end of the phone says, for $10,000, you have 10 seconds. Who shot Alexander Hamilton? And he says, Hurr. and he panics because the voice says, I'm sorry, I can't understand you. Your time is almost up. He then reaches over, and here's the point of the commercial, to the carton of milk and the glass, the empty glass that's sitting right next to him. He grabs the carton of milk, turns it up to wash it down, and there's no milk in it. And then he panics as the voice says, we're sorry, better luck next time. And then the text pops up, got milk, question mark. 30 years ago, I, if you don't remember that, go Google that commercial. It is just fantastic. Very well done. 30 years ago, I remember that commercial. I used that commercial because it so powerfully says, you don't want to get caught without milk and a mouthful of peanut butter and white bread when everything is on the line. Right? So Got Milk. 70 commercials they made with that Got Milk theme. So why do I take these few minutes to ask you that, tell you that story. It's a playful way of making a point and underscoring that there's some things in this life you need, but we don't really need milk, right? Jesus, in the passage that we prayed in our pastoral prayer, in Matthew chapter 7, he says you've got to have fruit. You've got to have fruit. You can have good fruit, you can have bad fruit. You have no fruit, you're worthless. So one of the three options is acceptable. And so Jesus presses on his disciples the reality that his people are to bear fruit, much fruit, for the glory of God as his spirit works in them and transforms them and changes them. And so it's a hard application question. You know, is there fruit in your life? as an individual Christian? Is there fruit in your Christian family? Is there fruit at Greenwood Presbyterian Church? What are we known for? What kinds of things should, should we be known for? What should we be emphasizing and prioritizing? And so that's why I'm going to have several weeks now on this tangible fruit, right? Because you've got to have fruit. And one of the priorities that God gives us is very clearly Worship. So this morning, the subject of worship. I have four simple points for you. And the first one is this. Big picture. Human beings were made, we were created for worship. That's why God has created, created us. It's for His worship. It's for His glory. It's for fellowship with him. We know this from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Many of you very familiar with that. Some of you maybe not so much. But the entire context of the human being is that we were created for worship. Now, you've heard it said, those of you who are studying now as students or those of you who studied long ago, you've heard that the human being can rightly be called homo erectus, right? We're the upright man. We stand on two feet. We serve the living God standing on two feet, and we're bipeds. We can walk around. Homo erectus. You remember that language? We're also, 
We've been called homo sapiens because of the size of our brain and the functionality of the human brain. We have big brains. Unlike the dinosaur who has a brain the size of a, you remember this? Walnut, right? We're big brain creatures walking around on two feet. Homo erectus, homo sapien. Those are important terms and concepts of what it is to be a human. But I don't think it's the most important or the most contextualizing. I think the most important one for us to understand is that we are homo adorans, which means we are worshiping creatures. We're to adore things. And the problem is we adore all the wrong things. Because, point number two, something has gone very wrong in our hearts. We are fallen creatures. We are sinful creatures. And that sin, Genesis chapter 3, if you're not familiar with it, it has corrupted the whole person, the whole being, down to the very heart. And so now instead of worshiping the one true God, we're prone to worship created things rather than the Creator. So we get it all backwards. Every one of us, we get it all wrong. But Psalm 96 captures beautifully, just in those nine verses, it captures beautifully two aspects of worship that I want us to underscore that I would pray would be fruitful in my life and in my family's life and in all of your lives. And that is aspects of private worship and public worship. That privately, personally, we are creatures made to worship. So is any part of your day outside of Sunday even conscious of being a worshiping creature? The truth is you're worshiping something. You just may be worshiping the wrong things. But we are created to worship. Homo adorans. Our hearts want to cling and devote themselves to something. In creation, we know where we're supposed to cling and what we're supposed to worship. But sin has affected me and you and every one of us so profoundly that we are now wedding ourselves, bonding ourselves, worshiping all the wrong things. And that, that is what the word worship means, literally. It means to prostrate yourself to fall and collapse before. Picture face down worship. Unworthy to stand in the presence of, you collapse, you're on your face. That's the nature of worship. Psalm 96 also shows us, it gives us this imagery, it shows us the verbal nature of worship. Listen to the verbs that were in Psalm 96 that we read. We're told to sing, to declare, to proclaim, and to ascribe praise to God. That's all verbal. It's verbal and of the heart. And that's done publicly, and it can be done personally, right? All of life is worship. That's true. As we get up Monday morning and go to work or go to school or whatever you do, we are going to worship the Lord in our vocation, whatever He's called us to do. But very specifically, we're to privately worship the Lord and we're to gather corporately to, pub, to publicly worship the Lord. So I want you to think about that this morning in the way of personal and corporate application. Is there any part of you that has any personal worship of God outside of this hour? Think of David in the Psalms. 
right? They play a private and a public role in modeling worship, instructing us on worship. You can read David's prayer, and they are rightly uttered personally as his words of praise of the living God. But they're also Israel's songbook, Israel's hymn book, that teach us corporately how to worship the living God. And so much of our worship is shaped by the Psalter, by the Psalms. This is how we know how to approach the living God, is how He's revealed Himself in His Word. And the Psalms are part of that. So private worship and public worship. Examine yourself. It can be hard to come to public worship. I know that. I mean, we start at 10.30. Saturday night, we can be up late. For sometimes, it's going to be hard to get here. But it's a privilege to have people to gather with, to publicly lift up our voices, to sing, proclaim, ascribe, declare the praise of the Lord. It's what Christians are called to do. It's our great privilege. It's a high calling of ours to do that. Think corporately of of Joshua chapter 24 or Nehemiah chapter 8. You can go look at those where Israel is assembled in mass number to corporately worship the Lord by confessing their sins, renewing their covenant that they have failed in their end of the bargain with the living God to receive a word of pardon and cleansing and affirmation from God. It's the same thing we're called to do every Lord's day. And it should be a priority. It is the fruit that God loves in the Christian life. But it's the fall. It's how sin has affected every one of us that's perverted our own hearts. It's distorted us and our worship. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. It's referenced in Genesis chapter 6 that sin is real. It's in us and it's ruined the affections of our heart. And we are now prone towards what? Idols, worshiping things crafted with the hands of men, or created things, or worshiping people, fellow created beings. We can even worship places. People, places, and things. We can make idols out of all three of those. But that is wrong worship. And I want you to think about that. How much of your heart, your mind, your calendar your bank account could be evidence to show maybe I'm lined up towards wrongful worship. Maybe I'm committed to lesser things. But here's the truth about wrong-headed worship. Instead of building us up as the worship of the one true God does, when we are worshiping the wrong things, it always does the same thing. It deteriorates us. It disintegrates us. It's not what we were made for. If you attribute the the work of your hands, the sweat of your brow, to honoring something less than the living God, that thing is ultimately destroying you. Now that may sound far-fetched and like I'm over-speaking, but I want you to think about that and really consider that this week. How is it that if we put our effort, our passions, our lives into worshiping something, someone, some dream other than the living God, it ultimately is breaking you down, deteriorating you as a person. 
Because it's only the right worship of the one true God that restores us, renews us, replenishes us. You think about that. What are you worshiping and do you find yourself feeling deteriorated, exhausted, discouraged? Worship is designed to reorder us, refocus us, recenter us on what is true about this world in which we live and the God, the one true God that we worship. Think of it this way. I have a memory when I was a little boy, somewhere in here, we'll say here so I'm not embarrassed by what I did, where I was outside in my parents' yard and I was digging in the ground with my father's screwdriver. And my dad came out and saw me and he said, Son, what are you doing? Don't do that, and I'll always remember, you're going to rust my tools. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to rust your tools. Oh, yes, it is. There's moisture in that soil, and it's going to ruin, it's going to corrode your tools. You just don't see it right away, and, and you don't know it. And that had me thinking this week about how, essentially, there's, there's a picture of wrong use of God's gift of worship of God's tools for His church and how they break us down and wear us out over time. Here's what I mean. God's given us a toolbox out of which we are called to use all the tools that He's given us in this life. We're to rightly use those tools. But the problem is, you and I, because of sin, we're misusing those tools. We're misusing those friends and those friendships. We're misusing our studies. We're misusing our job. We're misusing all the things that God has given us. We're digging with screwdrivers. We're hammering screws. We're cutting with wrenches. And we're wrenching with saw blades. We're misusing all the tools that God's given us. And what does that do to the tools? It's not what they were made for. Man, a tool is a marvelous thing to do what it was created to do. But you use a tool to do something it wasn't created to do, and the tool tends to break. You can put in your own story of home repair and how you've broken tools, doing something with them they weren't designed to do. And so it is with us and all the gifts of God, but I'm I'm focusing on worship this morning. Consider how you are perhaps not being restored fully as you should in your heart, in your mind, in your passion, in your energy, because you're not experiencing the rest that God has offered you, or the peace that God has offered you, or the confidence that God offers you, because you've been looking for those things in all the wrong places. God wants His people to have real fruit, good fruit, and worship is at the top of the list of what we need to have. Okay, thirdly, It's the church. It's the people of God. Old Testament and New Testament. We have been redeemed to offer God that worship that He wants. We've been called out of the world. Old Testament, New Testament now. We've been called out of the world to offer that worship that God desires. That's our job description. Think back to Exodus chapter 8 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him this. Do you remember what He told him to go tell him? Let my people go that they may worship me. That's why they were delivered. The greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament, the Exodus. Why was God so concerned to free His people? 
because they were to worship him. They were to live for him. And Pharaoh was suppressing that. And God said, no, I'm going to free them for a purpose. And the purpose is for worship. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. is the story of Jesus going into the synagogue. And it says, as was his custom. So Jesus routinely, like a good Israelite, the one true Israelite was Jesus. He showed up where he needed to be. And he read that passage, he opened up the scroll, and he read the passage. And do you remember what he said after he read it? Today, this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. Boom, dropped the mic, walked away. He's saying, all the scriptures are about me. And I have come, the king has come, the kingdom is here. But the pattern there was, gather for worship, gather for worship. God is concerned for worship. And so Jesus shows up routinely in the setting of worship. And then, of course, in Hebrews chapter 10, which we heard is a part of the assurance of pardon, we're told in the New Testament, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's going to be easy because of persecution, because of busyness, to quit showing up together. But remember, that's what you've been redeemed for. On earth and one day in heaven is for the worship of the living God. So don't grow weary in doing good. Keep being the church, we're told. And corporate worship, public worship, and private worship should be inseparable from the Christian life. It should be a priority for you and for me because that's how God restores our weary souls. Amen? Amen. Okay, a word about public and private worship. They taught me in seminary never to use two quotes in a row. But I'm going to use two quotes in a row because i got to fit this in. So, number one, a word about contemporary private worship. Um, I'm going to let somebody else say this because I probably wouldn't be so kind and polite. But uh, Jeffrey Thomas says this, and I don't have it on a slide, so you have to listen. Concerning personal worship and the use of Scripture in your life, Monday through Saturday, we'll call it. He says this. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and your mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and your outlook and your conduct. Now, why do I emphasize that? In our time in history, in our culture, with some American Presbyterian history behind us, revivalism, great awakening stuff, for those of you who have studied this, there can be this emphasis on feeling and emotion as if that is the climax of our worship of the living God. And some of us, God has made to be very feelingful creatures, very emotive creatures. And some have not been made that way, or maybe the fall has turned down that knob a bit. Maybe we feel more reasonable than we do feelingful. Personal worship, if it's defined as your feelings, you're just going to be disappointed. And I like the quote by Jeffrey Thomas because he's reminding us, look, essentially, just keep showing up. 
Open up the word and let the truth of God break upon you, your heart, your mind, your hands. Worship God, draw near to him, and don't expect a feeling to equate true and genuine worship, right? So if you're one who doesn't feel the same as someone else, it's not a measure of whether or not your worship is real or is sincere. God works differently. What matters is that his word is breaking upon our hearts and our minds and is affecting our hands. So don't think, even when we gather publicly, that the goal here is to muster up some emotion. Because I will only disappoint you. It's not about our feelings. It's about having God's word break upon us and it doing its work of transforming us and changing us and calling us to obedience. And sometimes that feeling will be there. Sometimes it may not. But it was never about feeling. It's about truth breaking into a sinful world upon sinful people. Emotions will come and go. They will wax and wane. But it's truth that we know God's given us and we must commit ourselves to. Secondly, two quotes in a row. Don't ever do this. My second quote is Sinclair Ferguson, and it's on the, um, a reminder about our public worship. When we do gather together, okay, what's at work now? What should we expect? What are we looking for? He says this, very important. When we come to church, we come to meet with God in worship. We come as we are. But we are never to leave the same as we came. We have met with the Lord. We've discovered again our sinfulness. We've tasted again His pardon. And we've received again instruction from His Word. Or we have ignored all of it. Now, that's why I included it in there. God's offering himself in all these rich ways in public worship. He's offering himself through his word. It's truth. It's truth. But we can come and we can ignore it, right? So when you go home, sometimes conversations in my house can sound like this. Words from my lips can sound like this. I wonder if it can ever be true of any of you. How's worship today? Ah, it's okay. We didn't sing my favorite songs, so worship was just okay. Or we didn't sing the songs that I prefer. Or sermon went a little bit long, and that's been happening too much. I apologize. Um, or I didn't see somebody I hoped to see. Um, so, yeah, worship, church wasn't so good today. You understand we're missing the point completely when it becomes about our preferences our expectations of what we want. We come into God's presence. Now, if, if we're faithful to biblical worship, we're going to confess our sins because we know of no other way to approach a holy God than to confess our sins. And if we're biblical and faithful in our worship, God's always going to respond to confession with assurance of pardon. Every time. I feel like I'm imitating somebody. Um, every time... Number three, and he is going to, after assuring us of his pardon, he's going to offer his word of instruction to feed us, to edify us, so that every one of us can go back out those doors and do what? Go be the church. 
to be His people, to live as His, his body, as His holy bride. And so we, we go, we're, we're the church at work, we're the church at home, we're the church at the gym. Even when we go to Walmart and shop, we're to be the church in the world. But what happened here reminded us, reset us, renewed us. This is who we are. This is what defines me ultimately. Not my performance at work or in school. Not even my relationships at home define me. God himself redeems and defines his people. Lastly, finally, biblical worship puts us back in our place. What do I mean by that? Have you ever heard somebody, maybe a teacher, maybe a coach, maybe a camp counselor, maybe an employer, maybe a parent, speaking of a wayward child or student, and, and maybe they say something like this, well, we're going to put him back in his place. Right? There's a sense in which that's what's happening in worship. But here's what I mean. It's more beautiful than it sounds so far. God puts us back in our place. Now, as we come into worship, I've just said that it is imperative that we confess our sins, right? In that way, worship puts us back in our place. We don't walk in through the door and just stroll into the presence of God and be like, hey God, how's it going today? Good to see you. We're put back in our place and our liturgy helps us do that by confessing our sins. Right? We're put back in our right place. This is who I am. No hiding it. No pretending. I am a lost, ruined, corrupt sinner. And only by God's grace do I have any hope. We're put back in our right place. Does that make sense? That's step one of being put back in your proper place. Step two. God says that those who are humbled will be exalted. They'll be lifted up. And that's what happens in our worship service when we gather publicly. And in your private worship and use of Scripture, you should be so familiar with this as a part of the gospel that you do it naturally, that you privately confess your sins in private worship and receive that assurance of pardon that in Jesus your sins are forgiven. Your private worship, your public worship should always reorient you in that way. It puts you back in your proper place. Because as the forgiven people of God who've confessed their sins, you go from humiliation, being humbled, to exaltation. To being lifted up with God Himself, forgiven in Christ. Not because of anything you could do, no good works you could muster up, no emotions that you could work up into a lather. But God, to those He humbles, He exalts. Now that language should sound familiar. And it's going to be what brings us to the Lord's table this morning. So I've said that we're put back in our proper place when God humbles us and through the gospel exalts us. He treats us as if we had never sinned. He exalts us, promises that there's a place for us in glory with Him. But you know, that is exactly what Jesus has done for His church, for His bride. He humbled himself. He came down from heaven. He lived a lowly life in the flesh, a hard life. He suffered, he died, and in that way, he experienced the humiliation of sin. And he did it for his church. He did it for his people. But by overcoming sin and death itself, what? He is exalted. He's in a state of exaltation. 
And what He has done through humiliation and exaltation, He now calls us to do and promises is where we rightfully belong. His church will be humbled to confess their sins and they are exalted. There's a place for them in heaven itself. Do you feel that rhythm of humiliation, exaltation? Humiliation, exaltation. I don't get what I deserve. His grace abounds. He treats me as a child of God, a son of the living God. That's how worship puts us back in our place. So consider that. Is that happening for you in your private worship and in your public worship? It's what Jesus came to do. It's precisely what He came to do. I'll close with this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. You want to feel humiliation and exaltation of Jesus as we come to the table? Give your attention to the familiar passage of Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was humbled, he was humiliated, that he might be exalted and bring you to be with him forever by faith. That's what the Lord Jesus has done, and that's why we worship him personally and publicly. So this week, consider your life. Consider private worship. It's what you were created for. And don't underestimate public worship, the privilege that is ours and how God reminds us, renews us, and restores us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the high and holy calling of being called to be worshipers. And Lord, we see and admit and confess we worship all the wrong things. But this morning, would you set us free from wrong-headed worship and set us free to worship you, the one true God, that we would verbally and vocally praise, sing, declare, and ascribe telling of all your wondrous works. So Lord, even now as we sing a hymn together, as Christians are called to sing, may our hearts be glad. May we be reminded of the gospel. And may we be empowered to worship as the true church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.